Committee on Foreign Relations will come to order. I want to thank my fellow members of the committee and our nominees today for their patience with the technological limitations the COVID-19 pandemic have, has placed on us. I hope everyone can hear me incidentally. You can nod affirmatively if indeed that's the case or uh, put your thumb up. <laughs> thank you. And the record will show that everyone nodded affirmatively. I know we all wish uh, we could be meeting and, and hearing uh, uh, from this talented group of people in person. I'd also like to thank Senator Merkley for his willingness to help convene this hearing today and for his tireless work with me on many, many issues facing our nation abroad. Today, this committee will consider the nominations of five individuals to represent the United States of America in their respective organizations. Our nominees today are Ms. Jenny McGee, who serves as the Associate Director of the United States Agency for International Development. The Honorable Stephen Dowd, to be U.S. Director of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. The Honorable Richard M. Mills, to be Deputy Representative of the United States to the United Nations with the rank of Ambassador. Mr. Jason Chung to be U.S. Director of the Asian Development Bank with the rank of Ambassador. Mr. Joseph Manso to be the U.S. Representative to the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons with the rank of Ambassador. Thank you again for your willingness to serve. For those of you that do not know, Senator Merkley and I have the privilege of leading the Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Multilateral Organizations. And in that role, we have oversight of some of the organizations which will be discussed today. As we've discussed in our subcommittee, and indeed as the full Senate Foreign Relations Committee has heard many times, the United States and the liberal democratic order is under assault by illiberal forces and governments. These governments do not seek freedom and peace, but instead seek power and influence over weaker nations from which they hope to gain regional and global dominance. As has been a central conception of this administration's national security strategy, the United States is facing a period of great power conflict. This period of challenge, however, may not uh, be limited to battlefields at sea, on land, or in the air. And it's my deep hope that these differences will never erupt in open conflict. But as we are already seeing, our adversaries are already waging serious and strong campaigns within and against international and multilateral institutions. It's imperative that the United States refuse to sit back and accept our adversaries' marches down the field. In short, it's time for the United States to go on offense. This means public servants exerting pressure within international organizations for the, those organizations to abide by their charters and to seek freedom, peace, prosperity, and opportunity. Within the international fora to which the U.S. is a party, this is going to require a maximalist strategy of seeking partners, building coalitions, and creating pathways for the, these bodies to actually serve their member states. For standard-setting bodies, this means open, transparent mechanisms and leadership that upholds rules and regulations and doesn't serve the government and industry's 
of any one nation. And in development organizations, this means a people and business first approach that leverages private sector capacity and human rights to support sustainable projects that are not abused by investing governments. For our nominees today, I wish to underscore that that agenda and uh, requirement for you. If confirmed, I only ask that you execute your duties with unflagging effort, enthusiasm, and patriotism. I hope to hear how you'll seek to do that shortly. I now recognize, uh, if he has joined us, my friend and distinguished colleague, Senator Merkley, for his opening comments. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. We've been having technical difficulties. I could see you all, but there was, uh, I wasn't being admitted on the video end, uh, and that seems to have been fixed on the fourth try. So I'm good, good to be with you now as we all come into this uh, different age. And this is an, an important hearing. And thank you to the nominees who are willing to serve, putting themselves forward to tackle the significant challenges that we have in a variety of fields. I'm pleased that even amidst the disruptions to normal Senate business, we were able to move forward and consider important nominees in the multilateral institution and development spheres. Each of these nominees would oversee critical work touching on key challenges such as economic development and human rights and climate chaos and weapons proliferation, humanitarian relief. If confirmed, they would assume leadership roles during a global pandemic that has killed more than 375,000 people. It's have a devastating impact on the global economy. The COVID-19 crisis has given rise to tremendous global health and humanitarian needs severely disrupting the global food supply. It's propelled hundreds of millions of people into unemployment and financial peril. It's exacerbated the risk of human rights abuse and violent conflict and harmed many of the world's most vulnerable. Meanwhile, we need to increase United States leadership and work in diplomacy and development. We have to avoid any retreat from organizations and international agencies such agencies as you all will be tasked to lead if confirmed. Several of these positions have relevance for our country's coronavirus response. All of them are vital to promoting democracy and peace building and economic dignity, now more important than ever. I look forward to hearing from each of you and how you will ensure that the United States works in partnership with the international community to solve the critical challenges the world faces. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you, Senator Merkley, uh, for those words and for your continued leadership in this area. We'll now turn our attention to our nominees. All five have already served or are currently serving the United States in various roles around the globe. And I'm sure our conversations today will reflect that expertise and commitment to service. I offer my congratulations to all of you on your nominations to these respective roles and thank you for your willingness to serve in them. And I especially wanna thank your families, for the sacrifices they've made and will continue to make upon your confirmations. Now, before I go further, I understand Congress, Congressman Don Bacon from the great state of Nebraska wishes to be recognized in order to introduce a nominee. Please proceed. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, and also thank the ranking member and the committee uh, for having me on today. 
I, I really appreciate you all leading the way and getting our, you're showing the way how to get our country back to work. I thank you. Today I have the honor of introducing to the committee a colleague, a friend, and a distinguished public servant, Jenny McGee. Jenny has been nominated by the president to serve in the newly created position of USAID Associate Administrator for Relief, Response, and Resilience. And I thank the committee for the opportunity just to say a few words on her behalf. As a citizen, I'm deep, deeply grateful that capable and patriotic Americans like Jenny remain willing to devote their lives to serve our nation in challenging positions of consequence. USAID embodies the nobility of this calling, and with the advice and consent of the Senate, will greatly benefit from Jenny's experience, her leadership, and her passion to build a more peaceful and prosperous world. I had the honor of serving with Jenny on active duty in the Air Force, where she was known as a leader of integrity. We served with distinction, distinction in some of the most dynamic and challenging missions confronting our country. Her nomination now before the committee represents an important opportunity with the right person in the right position at the exact right time. By the way, when I served with her, she oversaw all of the training, all the promotions, all the assignments for all of our Air Force intelligence personnel, a tremendous responsibility. She did it uh, with superb excellence. So as USAID Associate Administrator, generally be charged with providing strategic guidance for the bureaus of the humanitarian assistance, conflict prevention and stabilization and resilience and food security. From her distinguished service in the Middle East and Europe to her policy experience in the Pentagon and the National Security Council, Jenny's proven time and time again her ability to solve complex challenges with inspiring, while inspiring others to exceed their expectations of themselves. So through this storied history, USAID has symbolized American leadership and manifests the compassion of the American people. Equally important, it plays an increasingly central role in our national security strategy of the United States. So I can think of no better leader to nominate for this important job. And I ask for the committee's thoughtful consideration of the nomination before you. <clears throat> Standing before you, you have Jenny. She's full of integrity. She's mission focused and she's compassionate. She's gonna do a great job for America. I thank you and I yield back. Well, thank you so much, Congressman. And uh, you're welcome to uh, stay with us for the remainder of the hearing. I do know how busy our jobs are. so. Um, I'll, I'll leave that up to you. Feel at liberty to uh, shove off if you like, sir. Okay. Um, to all our nominees today, without objection, uh, your full written statements will be included in the record. I'd ask each of you to kindly summarize your written statement in no more than five minutes, if possible. That can be challenging for senators, but uh, we ask that of our nominees. We'll hear first from Ms. Jenny McGee. The president's nominee to serve as associate administrator for relief, response, and resilience at the U.S. Agency for International Development. As Congressman Bacon noted, Ms. McGee served our nation uh, with great distinction for 31 years in the United States Air Force, retiring in December as a colonel in her career. Uh, colonel McGee served in and commanded operational intel, surveillance, and reconnaissance units around the globe. She additionally served on the staff of the National Security Council and within the office of the Secretary of Defense. She held senior positions within the U.S. Air Forces in Europe and Africa at CENTCOM and uh, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And perhaps most importantly, she is a graduate of Indiana's own Purdue University. Ms. McGee, thank you for being here and uh, please proceed. <laughs> 
Good morning and uh, thank you, sir. Uh, Mr. Chairman, ranking member and distinguished members of the committee, uh, I'm honored to appear before you today as President Trump's nominee for associate editor, excuse me, associate administrator for relief, response and resilience at the United States Agency for USAID. I am grateful to President Trump, former Administrator Green, Acting Administrator Barsa, Deputy Administrator Glick, for their trust in me to serve in this important new role. And I would like to thank Congressman Bacon for his kind introduction and his leadership, his counsel, and his friendship. If confirmed to this new position as Associate Administrator, I would oversee three bureaus for some of the most fast-paced and high-profile work of the agency. The bureaus for humanitarian assistance, conflict prevention and stabilization, and resilience and food security. This is certainly a Herculean task to which I will devote all of my energy, capabilities, and heart. During the confirmation process, I have had the honor to meet with many USAID employees. To those dedicated foreign service, civil service, and contract employees, I thank you for your counsel and your guidance. Under the leadership of Rear Admiral Tim Ziemer, Dr. Beth Dunford, Trey Hicks, Rob Jenkins, this incredible team responds to natural and man-made disasters, supports programs to reduce global hunger, and works to prevent conflict and violent extremism. Both Admiral Zemer and Dr. Dunford have just or are retiring this month, and I would like to salute their service and thank them for their decades of service to the nation. I must also thank my family, friends, and colleagues who have given me tremendous support and encouragement over the years. My wonderful husband, Patrick, is a retired US Navy officer and is here with me today. Thank you, dear. <laughs> and That's my fantastic. proud parents. That's fantastic. <laughs> Hi, Patrick. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> and uh, my, my proud father, uh, Joe, is a retired US Air Force Senior Master Sergeant uh, and then Air Force Civil Servant. And my mother, Tokiko, are both in Ohio safely in their home. The life and opportunities I have had, including my military career, all stem from my parents' decision to adopt me from an orphanage in Seoul, South Korea. And I am grateful to their unconditional love and values and their belief in this great nation. When I decided to retire from 31 years in the Air Force, I knew I wanted to continue to serve in a role that emphasizes our exceptional American values and commitment to democracy and humanitarian assistance. During my career, I have appreciated the opportunity to work with USAID most directly as part of logistics planning in the wake of the 2010 Haiti earthquake. My units have also engaged in security assistance work across the spectrum, supporting agriculture and land use in Niger and Ghana, and capacity building projects across Africa and Europe. In every engagement, I have admired the consistent courage, commitment, and mission focus of USAID personnel. And if confirmed, it will truly be an honor to join the USAID team. If confirmed as associate administrator, I will work to strengthen the integration of our humanitarian assistance, resilience, and crisis prevention programming. A critical task as we respond to the COVID-19 pandemic, which created a unique set of challenges abroad, particularly in fragile contexts. While physical distancing is an effective tool to contain the spread of COVID-19, there is no space for distancing in Cox's Bazar, the world's largest refugee camp, hosting some 600,000 Rohingya refugees. And despite a declared ceasefire in Yemen, the fighting has escalated, complicating efforts to respond to a burgeoning outbreak in that country. Beyond responding to immediate needs, we must also prepare for secondary and tertiary effects of the pandemic. Deteriorating health systems and widespread food insecurity could lead to new humanitarian crises. Democratic institutions will need to be rebuilt or reinforced. If confirmed, I would be proud to help bring all of the agency's assets to bear to contain the disease and help the world maximize its recovery from COVID-19. 
If confirmed as associate administrator, I will have four priority areas. First and foremost, I will work to ensure the safety and security of the 1,500 personnel I would directly oversee, many of whom work in dangerous environments and difficult circumstances. Second, I will work to integrate and streamline USAID's humanitarian assistance, food security and resilience programming, and conflict prevention interventions to address fragility, respond to global crises, and act as a stabilizing force in times of country transition. Third, I will strengthen and elevate the U.S. government's humanitarian voice, both in the interagency and on the world stage. And last, but certainly not least, I will work to improve the administration's ability to identify fragile states and deliver corrective mitigating measures by further strengthening civil military collaboration. Senator, if confirmed as associate administrator, I pledge to be a strong advocate for USAID's mission and people to take full advantage of the expertise of our workforce and partners and to be a good steward of taxpayer dollars. I am humbled every day by the incredible work of humanitarian and development professionals. And if confirmed, I look forward to the service, the teamwork and the camaraderie alongside them. It is an honor to appear before you today and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. McGee. Uh, next, we'll hear from the Honorable Stephen Dowd, who's been nominated to serve as the U.S. Director of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Mr. Dowd served as the U.S. Executive Director of the African Development Bank since 2017. He's been responsible for overseeing that organization's audit and finance activities, and in, in that capacity, has helped lead America's growing developmental infrastructure and monetary activities on the African continent. He previously worked for over three decades in the private sector and has been the leader of major multi-industry companies. Mr. Dowd, thank you for being here and please proceed. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, and distinguished members of the Foreign Relations Committee, it is a great honor to appear before you today as the nominee to serve as Executive Director of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Before discussing my background in the EBRD, I would like to introduce my wife, Lillian. Lillian is an attorney and an ardent defender of legal rights for women and girls in Africa. We share a great love for Africa. My deepest thanks to Lillian and our three children, Stephen, Thomas, and Andrea, for their love and support. Also watching today is my college professor from more than four decades ago. Professor Frederick Schweitzer of Manhattan College. Serving at the African Development Bank has been a privilege. It's not an easy job, but it is immensely satisfying. Tough issues from strategic program design and implementation to complex and sensitive governance issues need to be addressed in a balanced but firm manner. Americans are the most generous people in the world, but often multilateral institutions have become ineffective and often driven by political agendas. International cooperation can be important and constructive, but it should serve U.S. interests by working toward clear benefits for the people of developing countries. American leadership is essential to revitalizing and renewing multilateral development assistance. Due in part to its many successes in private sector-led growth and promoting dem democratic value systems aligned to ours. Many EBRD countries are valued allies and important trading partners of the United States. EBRD support plays a crucial role 
in the southern and eastern Mediterranean region, as well as in Ukraine, Mongolia, and Central Asia. In fact, the EBRD is one of the few instruments the U.S. has to engage in Central Asia at a time of Belt and Road and great power competition, as mentioned by Senator Young. Having said that, the EBRD is at a crossroads, and the United States will be an essential voice and a consensus leader in shaping the bank's direction and purpose in the years ahead. Rather than expanding into Sub-Saharan Africa, the, RB, the EBRD should finish the job in its existing portfolio. Knowing African finance and some African leaders well, I would leave the door open to deeper Af African engagement for the future. The bank must accelerate prosperity by crowding in private capital, many times bigger than the collective capital at the EBRD, from investment funds, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, insurance funds, and other pools of long-term funds. There are other challenges facing the EBRD, from debt sustainability to the economic shock of COVID-19, as discussed by Senator Merkley. There is much work to be done. My experience in development banking and finance, coupled with private sector executive experience, provide me with a skill set well-suited to the challenges at the EBRD. Charting the course forward, the bank must be guided by its democratically grounded mandate that assists clients toward market-oriented growth and investment, promotes entrepreneurial initiative, fortifies banking and credit systems, and bolsters legal frameworks to support contract and property rights. These are the components of shared prosperity, peace, and stability. I will resolutely safeguard our nation's vital interests and deeply rooted values at the EBRD should you allow me the opportunity to serve as executive director. Thank you again for the opportunity to appear before you today. I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you, Mr. Dowd. Our next nominee is the Honorable Richard Mills, who is the nominee to be Deputy Ambassador and Deputy Representative of the United States to the United Nations Bodies in New York. Mr. Mills is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service Class of Minister Counselor. He currently serves as the Chargé d'Affaires of the U.S. Embassy to Canada and from 2015 to 2018 served as the U.S. Ambassador to Armenia. In a career of service spanning three decades, Mr. Mills has additionally served as a diplomat in Lebanon, Malta, Iraq, the United Kingdom, Saudi Arabia, Ireland, Russia, France, and Pakistan. He's also served as a political officer in the U.S. mission to the United States and in numerous positions here in Washington. Mr. Mills, pr please proceed. Thank you, Chairman Young. I appreciate that introduction. And my thanks as well to Ranking Member Merkley, distinguished members of the committee. I am very honored to appear before you today as the president's nominee to serve as the deputy representative of the United States to the United Nations. As the chairman mentioned, I've been privileged to serve on behalf of the American people in many places during my career in the U.S. Foreign Service, including in Armenia as ambassador, and most recently here in Ottawa, where I lead an outstanding team at the U.S. Mission to Canada. 
but it will be a special privilege for me, if I am confirmed, to join Ambassador Kelly Craft's team and return to the U.S. mission to the United Nations, where I previously had the great privilege of serving from 2001 to 2003. That experience provided me insight into the strengths and the weaknesses of the UN system. The strengths are real. I think we see those strengths in conflict and post-conflict zones where the UN Blue Helmets can provide space for peace to take root. We see them where UN agencies such as UNICEF and the World Food Program save lives and bring hope to devastated communities. And I see those strengths when the UN Security Council applies meaningful sanctions to rogue states, such as North Korea and Iran. And all of these examples of UN effectiveness, Mr. Chairman, I think you find the United States at the center of the action. It's my view that the UN would quickly, in fact, lose its bearings without the continuing stewardship and leadership of the United States. I say that because no other nation demands more of the UN than the United States. I say that because the values on which the UN is founded are American values, peace, protection of human rights, respect for sovereignty, and we need to defend those values. And I say that because even now, 75 years after the creation of the UN, the majority of member states still look, I believe, to the United States to lead the way. Mr. Chairman, the weaknesses in the UN system are apparent as well. Uh, the COVID crisis dramatically, for example, underscored the need for an incredible and effective World Health Organization. Unfortunately, the WHO's failings in response to the crisis have underscored to the United States and to our like-minded partners that we must demand maximum transparency from international organizations and never allow individual member states to politicize technical international agencies like the WHO. And if it happens, the United States must act. I do believe positive steps have been taken in recent years to improve accountability in the entire UN system. Since my previous tour at the UN mission, I've seen increased scrutiny of peacekeeping mandates, and that's improved the efficiency and the effectiveness of peacekeeping missions. Secretary General Guterres has taken important steps to improve transparency, strengthen reporting requirements. But as I think we all know, this is an ongoing process. So if confirmed, I look forward to supporting Ambassador Kraft, her team, and the hard continuing work of promoting oversight and making sure there's continuing reform. Mr. Chairman, other member states, as we've heard from the other panelists, can and need to do more to support financially the world's expanding humanitarian needs. Last year, the United States contributed more than $9 billion to UN humanitarian responses. Unfortunately, the needs outstrip the resources. And as the situations in Syria, Yemen, Venezuela continue to worsen, the United States is asking UN members to do more. In addition, as you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, I am aware that there are other actors on the global stage that pose challenges to the UN's core principles and to American values. A more assertive China, for example, which is eager to assume leadership, leadership roles across the UN system, and then use UN venues to advance its own ideology and self-interested vision for global development. 
Iran continues to fuel conflict in Syria, Yemen, and Iraq. Russia, too, is hard at work propping up the Assad and the Maduro regimes and shielding both of them from international action in the Security Council. This is all to say, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, that in a complex world, an effective UN remains crucial to protecting America's interests in the world. If confirmed, I look forward to helping the UN mission ensure the UN remains an effective tool. Thank you. I welcome your questions and your comments. And thank you, Mr. Mills. Our next nominee is Mr. Jason Chung, who has been nominated to serve as the U.S. Director of the Asian Development Bank with the rank of ambassador. Mr. Chung currently serves as the U.S. Alternative Executive Director of the ADB, a position he served in since 2018 and represents the U.S. on the Board of Directors. He previously served in the Treasury Department as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs and had served in the Department's International Affairs Office. Mr. Chung previously worked as a consultant in Washington, D.C., as well as in the U.S. House of Representatives and for the State of Maryland. Mr. Chung, please proceed. Chairman Young, Senator Merkley, and members of the committee, I'm honored to be President Trump's nominee to be U.S. Director to the Asian Development Bank with the rank of ambassador. I'm grateful to Secretary Mnuchin for his confidence in recommending me for this position. I also appreciate the support from Undersecretary McIntosh and my colleagues at the Treasury Department. I'd like to acknowledge my wife, Susanna, and son, Davis and Alexander, lucky to and humbled to have the three of them in my life. Likewise, I'm grateful to my parents for their love and guidance throughout my life. As a son of immigrants, it has been an incredible honor to serve my nation in various roles in government. As you said, Mr. Chairman, I served as Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Treasury Department, working on international affairs and development issues under then Undersecretary David Malpass. I also gained firsthand appreciation for the legislative and oversight processes during my five years working in the U.S. House of Representatives. Currently, as U.S. Alternate Director to the Asian Development Bank, I serve on the ADB's Board of Directors. I help advance the ADB's core mission of achieving a prosperous, inclusive, resilient, and sustainable Asia and the Pacific, while ensuring ADB's programs are in line with American goals, values, and policies. The world is facing a profound public health and economic challenge as it looks to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. The United States and G20 have called on international financial institutions and multilateral development banks to provide urgently needed financial and technical support to the developing world. This support comes at a crucial time when resources are scarce and the needs are many. ADB is in a unique position to help bridge these gaps in an appropriate and thoughtful way. It is imperative that the U.S. promotes transparency and exercise its oversight authority at the ADB during this time. While responding to the COVID-19 pandemic has taken center stage at international institutions across the globe, I note ADB programs fit into the overall U.S. strategic interest. During the past year and a half, the U.S. staff and I have set out goals to achieve and we've begun to accomplish these goals. One accomplishment includes the approval of a differentiated pricing scheme for sovereign loans. This initiative strengthens ADB's financial sustainability by requiring upper-middle income countries like China and Kazakhstan, among others, to pay increased premiums for borrowing from ADB. This will help alleviate the need for U.S. taxpayer-funded capital increase and mirrors reforms the World Bank Group enacted a few years ago. We also use our perch at ADB to advance debt transparency and sustainability. As a premier development and lending institution in the region, ADB has a key role to play in supporting the IMF and World Bank's 
multi-pronged approach for addressing emerging debt vulnerabilities. Given the vast development needs and financing gaps in the region, we're also closely monitoring the activities of other financiers. We strongly advocate for other institutions to follow sound development practices on debt sustainability, accountability, and anti-corruption, as well as enact vigorous environmental and social safeguards. We are keenly aware of China's goals and ambitions through Belt and Road initiatives or other instruments. We highlight the shortcomings of BRI to pr provide necessary lending safeguards, governance, and debt transparency. We have arranged frameworks and MOUs with ADB and with AID, OPIC, now DFC, to serve as high-quality, transparent alternatives to the debt trap programs by China. We have worked with our partners on the Board of Directors to prevent ADB projects from being introduced in nations and regions where state actions run contrary to American values. For instance, the U.S. and our European partners prevented board approval of two ADB projects planned for Xinjiang, China. Legislative mandates, such as trafficking in persons, have provided us with strong tools to discourage institutions like the ADB from supporting programs and nations that abuse human rights. If fortunate to be confirmed, I look forward to continue the progress that the office has made in advancing ADB's core mission in American values abroad. I remain committed to alleviating corruption, enhancing transparency, and strengthening institutions in Asia and the Pacific. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, thank you for allowing me to appear before you today. I look forward to working with you and members of both the Senate and the House in addressing our goals in Asia and the Pacific. I look forward to answering any questions you may have, and if confirmed, I hope to foster a close working relationship with you and your staff. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chung. Next, we'll hear from Mr. Joseph Manso, who is the president's nominee to be U.S. Representative to the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons with the rank of Ambassador. Mr. Manso is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, class of Minister Counselor, and has served as a diplomat since 1985. Currently serves as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs, where he's been since 2018. He previously served as director in the offices of UN Political Affairs in Regional European Security Affairs, as well as the Deputy Permanent Representative at the U.S. Mission to NATO. In a variety of diplomatic, law enforcement, and military affairs roles, he has served in Spain, Mexico, Austria, Belgium, Bolivia, Iraq, and at the UN in New York, as well as roles here in Washington. He has also taught at the National War College. Mr. Manso, please proceed. Thank you, Chairman Young. Thank you, Ranking Member Merkley and distinguished members of the committee. It is an honor to come before this committee as the president's nominee to be the next U.S. permanent representative to the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. If confirmed, I pledge to work closely with this committee and members of Congress to advance U.S. interests at the OPCW. I would not be here today without the support and love of my wife, Patricia, and my daughters, Lauren and Marisa. They have shared my Foreign Service journey, moving 16 times in the past 35 years, usually without complaint. I would also not be here without the love and support of my parents, Jose and Mary Manso. I thank them and all my family. We are all patriots here, and none of us requires further proof of the goodness of the United States, but the fact that this country has offered so much to the son of an immigrant from Spain, 
underlines how America remains a land of opportunity. It is for me a privilege to serve the American people as a foreign service officer. And I have sought throughout my career to protect and advance the interests of the United States, whether at NATO, the United Nations, the OSCE, or my bilateral postings. If confirmed, this OPCW assignment would be a logical follow-on to my years of multilateral work in the Foreign Service. The mission of the OPCW, to end the development, production, stockpiling, transfer, and use of chemical weapons is essential to the security of the American people. This mission has had strong and continuous bipartisan support since the Chemical Weapons Convention, the CWC, entered into force in 1997. In April 2017, President Trump stated, it is in the vital national security interests of the United States to prevent and deter the spread and use of deadly chemical weapons. The United States has made it a priority to restore deterrence against the use of chemical weapons. In the past two years, the United States and its partners led efforts at the OPCW to take action seeking to stop further chemical weapons use. In June 2018, states parties of the OPCW agreed to an unprecedented decision condemning recent uses of chemical weapons in the UK, Malaysia, and in, Syrian by, and in Syria by the Assad regime. The 2018 decision directing the OPCW to establish attribution arrangements for the use of chemical weapons in Syria. The OPCW was mandated to identify perpetrators for use of chemical weapons in Syria, which the OPCW has addressed through the creation of the Investigative and Identification Team. The IIT. The IIT released its first report in April 2020, attributing responsibility to the Assad regime, which it identified as the perpetrator of three chemical weapons attacks that occurred in Syria in March 2017. In response to the report, the United States is urging responsible states to work together to push for accountability for the Syrian regime's confirmed use of chemical weapons, looking at the full array of tools available at the OPCW the UN, and to us as sovereign states. Chemical weapons use will not be tolerated. Another example of US leadership in addressing chemical weapons use was in response to the Salisbury and Amesbury incidents involving military-grade nerve agents referred to as Novichoks. United States, Canada, and the Netherlands jointly submitted a proposal to add two chemical families of Novichoks to the annex to the convention. This proposal was adopted by consensus at last year's Conference of States Parties. The additions of these lethal nerve agents developed by the former Soviet Union will ensure their declaration and subject them to verification by the OPCW. This change, which goes into effect next week, represents the first ever addition to the CWC Annex on Chemicals and reflects the Convention's adaptability to current threats. If confirmed, I would be honored to aggressively take forward this work which have been accomplished thus far through U.S. leadership. If the United States is to succeed in restoring deterrence against chemical weapons use and driving chemical weapons use to zero, we must continue to support these efforts. And now the most beautiful words in the English language, Mr. Chairman, in conclusion, I am proud of what the United States has accomplished at the OPCW, and if confirmed, I would be honored to be part of the administration's team committed to effective multilateralism and advancing our national security objective of seeking a world free of chemical weapons. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mr. Manso. Uh, 
Thank you all for your previous service and for your willingness to be nominated for these posts. We'll now open it up for questions from the committee. And um, uh, suppose I have prerogatives since I'm chairing uh, this, uh, this hearing, but uh, I will defer to our, our ranking member, Senator Merkley, uh, if he'd like to proceed. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'll jump right in then. And uh, Ms. McGee, uh, when we had the chance to talk, I noted that we're in an in incredibly challenging world situation Existing famines complicated by weather of the last year, locusts, uh, COVID-19, and military conflicts are expected to double the number of people on the planet who are in acute food shortages from about 135 million to roughly twice that, 265 to 270 million people. I had asked if you would, would meet with uh, leaders of groups like Mercy Corps. I gather you did that yesterday. And maybe you could just give us a little bit of a, of, of, a, of a sense of the role those organizations play in partnership with USAID and any insights that you might have gained from, from that dialogue. Thank you, Senator. Uh, indeed, we did have that, uh, have that session yesterday and I very much appreciated um, the active participation and the uh, candor and the viewpoints that were shared uh, by the um, by the uh, associations and the groups that attended. Um, as you can imagine, uh, COVID-19 uh, response was uh, was foremost in many of their minds. Um, the, um, the guidance and operating conditions uh, that they are contending with uh, are challenging, uh, as both of course on a humanitarian response uh, perspective as well as uh, as to continue a long-term development work. Um, they're certainly aware of, of USAID's uh, priority uh, and approach, uh, along with the State Department, uh, to do work um, that would help uh, prevent backsliding and loss of some of the gains, the hard-fought gains um, that have been achieved uh, on the development end of the uh, spectrum uh, by USAID, uh, its, its partners, and uh, host nations abroad. Uh, so USAID, uh, along with uh, the other COVID um, uh, strategies uh, are working on, of course, the, the global health emergency aspect, as well as um, uh, working to prevent further humanitarian consequences of existing uh, complex crises uh, and anything that could uh, could further exacerbate that. Uh, so uh, USAID and the partners are on the ground uh, working uh, as best they can. Of course, they are contending with logistical impacts. Uh, as you and I also discussed uh, in relation to uh, some of the movement restrictions um, that are that are being caused by uh, the response to, to COVID-19. Um, I will say that Yemen was also raised uh, as a concern. Uh, of course, uh, that is the largest humanitarian crisis uh, in the world. Uh, the U.S. remains one of the largest donors uh, to that humanitarian response. Uh, and so the, uh, the continuing uh, and exacerbating conditions on the ground uh, there in Yemen uh, were also uh, highlighted. Uh, and then uh, there were some questions about the USAID uh, organization uh, when some of the uh, some of the particulars uh, will manifest uh, such that the the agencies and organizations will see them um, but they also certainly shared uh, their their passion uh, their commitment on the ground uh, of their workers uh, and appreciating that um, that we will have a candid uh, and close working relationship uh, I committed that to them uh, and I certainly asked them uh, for their their candid feedback at all times uh, and we emphasize with one another the importance of that exchange, 
uh, that uh, I spoke about. Um, certainly, the the best intents that uh, that all of us have, you know, in Washington or on a staff. Uh, to, to put uh, forward uh, policies or operating uh, guidance uh, that does not always necessarily uh, come out, you know, the shoot uh, in the best, uh, most ideal way, you know, in the context uh, of an operating uh, environment. Uh, and so that, uh, that dialogue is necessary. I'm going to cut you off there because you've, you've answered the question. Thank you very much for meeting with those groups right, and trying to have a, an ongoing dialogue with them, their expertise and their, their role in delivering assistance uh, around the planet. Um, uh, Mr. Dowd, I wanted to uh, uh, turn to the role of the EBRD. It often focuses on project loans, equity investments, guarantees the private sector. Right now, uh, economic havoc is afflicting Greece, Albania, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, other countries in southeastern Europe. They're impacted by the pandemic in all kinds of ways, including the, the role of, of tourism. Should they be a special focus of the bank in the year or two to come? Thank you, Senator. Um, certainly, and I have uh, some encouraging news there. I'm not at the bank, obviously, yet, so I don't know the details. But I understand that the bank has um, uh, allocated, I believe, $21 billion for uh, short-term uh, uh, liquidity assistance to small and medium-sized businesses uh, in the bank's portfolio. And I believe in the longer run, they, uh, the bank has uh, dedicated uh, uh, most of the um, 2020 program and the 2021 program to uh, COVID-related uh, effects and after, uh, aftermath of the COVID. So I think the bank has taken steps and certainly this will be a key area as uh, these countries, the countries in the portfolio seek to rebuild after the devastating financial consequences of the virus. Uh, and also it, 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 it's another reason to um, at least postpone any thinking of uh, expanding the bank's portfolio. It seems it would be ill-timed as the resources of the bank uh, will be in such demand in the countries you identified and other countries. And I found it very interesting when you talked about uh, the potential plans for Sub-Saharan Africa and in your sense that that is not the right thing to do at this moment. You're bringing expertise directly from the African Development Bank to that, to that conversation. The European Investment Bank, yeah, the lending arm of the European Union, announced in November that it would phase out fossil fuel investments by the end of 2021, citing the worldwide impacts of, of carbon pollution and climate chaos on the human condition. Is it time for the EBRD to follow suit? I'm sorry, I, I, okay. Uh, Senator, um... The EBRD, I think, is, um, from what I can see, again, I'm not there, but I think they are aggressively pursuing uh, programs along those lines. I don't know the details, but uh, as a consensus-driven organization, I think that uh, there is a consensus for uh, uh, strengthening programs along these lines, and I, I think you will be pleased. I mean, you and I spoke during uh, my interview there, and I appreciated that very much about this very topic. And I, 
it's something I will monitor and I would certainly welcome uh, the input from you and your staff and helping uh, guide uh, our interaction. Senator Merkley. Yes. Oh, we Matt, may have an opportunity. <laughs> if I could, if I could just interject, I, I think we're going to have a number of senators with great interest in, in our nominees here, uh, wanting to ask questions. So um, uh, we may circle back. Uh, the, the hearing has been scheduled until noon. So if there, if if, if time permits, uh, opportunity for and Mr. Questions. Chairman, I'll just note on that point, uh, Mr. Dowd, that the the EBRD is continuing to finance uh, fossil fuel projects, uh, Romanian based Black Sea oil and gas bonds of fossil fuel companies in Ukraine, Bulgaria, Greece, Turkey, and Egypt, gas grid projects, the Trans-Adriatic and Trans-Antolian pipelines. So it certainly are not yet following the path of the European Investment Bank, but uh, for the same reasons that bank cited its change of policy, I think it's a, a conversation that's important for us to be part of as we consider the humanitarian impacts on the economy and the environment around the world. Ben, thanks so much. Thank you, Senator Merkley. Um, Ambassador Mills, um, you previously served at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations, as uh, I indicated in your introduction, from 2001 to 2003. That was back when John Negroponte was our ambassador. What has changed? I'm, I'm going to ask some uh, fairly short questions here. It's kind of a lightning round, so perhaps you could you give me a tight answer if, if possible. But what has changed about the United States relationship with that institution, with the United Nations, um, uh, from your standpoint since you last served there? I think the United States is much more focused on reform, accountability, and transparency. And we've seen some results. And I think that's the biggest difference since I was last there. When I was there in 2001, 2003, we were all shocked by the beginning reports about sexual exploitation and abuse in some of the peacekeeping operations. And I think we've seen some real reform there. I think Secretary General Guterres uh, has an annual report now that comes out that describes whether the zero tolerance policy is being followed. There's more engagement with the troop contributing countries. And so to me, that's one example how a bit more aggressive focus on reform and transparency has made a difference because of our leadership. Thank you, uh, Ambassador. Uh, next question is for Colonel McGee. Uh, Colonel McGee, uh, the conflict in Yemen is one in which uh, I have been deeply involved with a number of my colleagues. Uh, been a lot of focus on the extent to which uh, food insecurity plays a role in feeding uh, greater desperation and uh, leading to more conflict. For a period of time, I focused on um, what I regarded as violations of the law of war from the coalition. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and my hope is that we can eventually find a, a, a political agreement, a, a path towards peace. So what is UAD? USAID doing now to prepare for eventual political agreement in Yemen that will open the door for greater international involvement in, in caring for uh, those desperate people in that country. Thank you, Senator. Um, I, I agree. Uh, I, I share your concern about uh, the uh, the Profound state of affairs uh, that exists in Yemen uh, and the the ongoing um, 
fighting and displacement uh, of personnel. Um, as we know, the uh, the Yemeni people uh, have been uh, suffering uh, with uh, with tremendous uh, humanitarian need and uh, health crises uh, that that continue. Uh, where uh, USAID continues uh, to provide uh, life-saving uh, assistance, uh, both in the north uh, and throughout the country, uh, as well as uh, food assistance, uh, uh, water, sanitation, healthcare uh, protection, and and those kinds of things. Um, it is a, a place where we um, we want to closely monitor uh, the use of our U.S. taxpayer dollars. Um, that has been uh, 1.1 billion dollars since the start of fiscal year 19. Uh, and so uh, it's important that we are ensuring that those funds are being applied towards uh, the most vulnerable people who need them uh, and in the way that was intended when Congress appropriated the funds uh, and as we are uh, programming to do uh, with our partners on the ground. Uh, and so uh, th those uh, provisions continue. Uh, we uh, continue to participate in um, uh, the donor conferences as well. Uh, there was just a pledging conference a couple of days ago. Um, the U.S. did participate and, and did attend. Um, and as you know, we are contending with uh, the situation uh, in the north where the Houthis uh, have been blocking aid uh, and interfering uh, with the provision of aid as intended and harassing uh, aid workers. So uh, we continue to call on the Houthis um, with a uh, with a concerted voice uh, of, of groups uh, to try to improve that situation and and expand our programming. It's very difficult to give a tight answer when asked anything about Yemen. I've discovered that. Uh, so, but uh, that was thank you so much for that uh, wholesome response. Uh, and, and and lastly, I'll just ask because my time is expiring as well, uh, Mr. Chung, um, if if you could try and address uh, address. Uh, in, in a very concise fashion, uh, what you see the role of, of, of China and India being looking ahead at the ADB uh, in coming years? Uh, I know that's a very large question, but uh, if you have any reflections on that topic, I welcome. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, China and India are our two largest borrowers. So the idea is that, especially with China, I, I think. Uh, the focus will always be now putting them on a path to graduation, so they are no longer borrowers from the institution. For India, India is a little bit more complicated due to the fact that, uh, you know, ADB's mission is to alleviate the, uh, the poor and vulnerable. Uh, India is in a in a, quite a predicament as we speak, so I think in a way they're going to continue to borrow both on the sovereign and a non-sovereign uh, side uh, of the ledger. Um, and you'll see probably increased programming um, in in that country while we will push for decreased programming and loan support for China. Thank you, Mr. Shung. I believe Senator Gardner is with us. Uh, in this Zoom era, it can be sometimes difficult to determine if that's the case. I know Senator Gardner has gaveled in and has great interest in this topic. Uh, but we are often double and triple booked. Senator Gardner, you're recognized if you're with us at this time. Otherwise, we will move on to another one of my colleagues. Okay. Senator Cardin, who I know has been at another hearing, but uh, he too is quite interested in this. Senator Cardin, are you, um, are you with us for this hearing? Okay, um, 
Next is Senator Barrasso. Senator Barrasso, you're recognized. Okay. It is a Thursday here in Washington. We tend to have a lot of hearings uh, and votes before we fly back to our respective states. Well, I will proceed with more questions then. And they only get harder. I'm sorry. Uh, so, um, Mr. Chung, what actions would you pursue as director to minimize China's attempt to squeeze Taiwan out of the ADB? Uh, thank you very much for that question. Uh, I can tell you as we speak, we're addressing a lot of those concerns at the institution. Um, right now, I'll be honest with you, there's unequal treatment of uh, Taiwan and Taiwanese nationals at the institution, we're, and we're working with our Taiwanese board colleague to address, address those issues. Um, you know, we are gonna, we've already asked uh, my colleagues at the Treasury Department to send notes and uh, we, to, to ADB management on this topic. And we're in the process of uh, discussing these issues um, in terms of unequal treatment um, and, you know, fair treatment for, for a founding member of the institution as well. Well, I look forward to uh, staying in touch should you be confirmed uh, on, on that topic. Um, that, uh, I imagine that one's uh, it's gonna be one that we in Congress continue to press on. And I know this administration is uh, quite interested. Um, are there members, Mr. Chung, uh, of the ADB that, um, to put it colloquially, uh, are not pulling their weight as it relates to their contributions. And um, can, can you name them? Uh, Mr. Chairman, that's somewhat of a loaded question. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, you, you know, I, I do think that with our colleagues and, and with our partners, especially the Europeans, um, that we're working in every capacity to prevent uh, improper impropriety that takes place in the bank, uh, namely from uh, uh, the Chinese. Um, I, th I think we're working together to encourage the bank to graduate China. I think um, at times there are uh, geopolitical consequences with, with China being the largest neighbor in, in the region um, and some of the bilateral force that they bring to bear uh, being that neighbor. Um, but I do, I do believe there is some impetus and a role that the Europeans, Australians, as well as the Japanese, we are we are firmly addressing the issue as it relates to China. Um, and there's also issues regarding bank processes and institutional uh, constructs that we're we are looking to address with with those who are like-minded with us as well. Okay, Mr. Dowd. What value does the United States uh, pr provide to and derive from our involvement in the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development? Thank you, Senator. As I, I mentioned in my opening statement and expand a little bit in my written statement that I submitted, the um, particularly focusing on uh, Central Asia, 
uh, it's one of the very few channels the United States has to engage there. And this Central Asia is sort of the heart of the Belt and Road uh, program, and the EBRD has been very effective there. And I think it's a, a something that is to the U.S. benefit. Also, in the um, uh, in the Med Mediterranean, uh, as I mentioned earlier, also in the Middle Eastern area, I think it is another means for uh, like-minded uh, countries that are interested in democratic development in the long run. It's not an easy process, but especially uh, adhering to uh, the rule of law. Because in many of these countries, as in Africa, as I experienced, we are engaged in how it might be described as the rule of law versus corruption. And I, for one, uh, have no tolerance for corruption. And any of these institutions should be leading the way on anti-corruption, uh, both within their institutions and beyond in all their clients. And this is something that I assure you will be a high priority to me at the EBRD. Thank you. So, so to what extent is, is uh, the EBRD already, are, are, are they deeply involved in uh, the Middle East and, and uh, supporting uh, development efforts there uh, already, or is or is that sort of something you see as is important to the future? Help educate me on this, if if, if you would, sir. Yes, uh, in in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean countries, yes, uh, the the bank is very engaged, as well as uh, in Egypt, where there's a considerable portfolio. I believe Egypt is the second largest client uh, of the of the bank. Uh, Turkey being the first, but also uh, in across the Arab world, as you were mentioning, uh, in Tunisia, in uh, Morocco, certainly. And I think that there is uh, interest in expanding uh, possibly into Algeria and um, who knows, maybe Libya someday if things ever get to a point where they're settled enough to, to engage in, in uh, private sector development. Uh, but across uh, many Middle Eastern countries, the bank is very engaged again, and in, in, in uh, promoting democratic values and and uh, rules-based operations. Thank you. Thank you. It's quite helpful. I see Senator Merkley is with us, and uh, I will happily, um, if if he would like to ask some additional questions, I will happily recognize him at this time. Otherwise, I, I am loaded with more questions. And as I said, they only get more difficult. Um, uh, Mr. Chung, I wanted to turn to the Asian Development Bank. And you noted that China needs to be put on a path to graduation. When do you, what date do you have in mind for China's no. graduation? Senator, I, I wish I had uh, a specific date in mind. Sooner, sooner the better, obviously. Um, we are, as I noted in our uh, bilateral meeting um, a couple of weeks ago, we, we are in the process of working, uh, the bank is in the process of working with China on their next five-year lending program. And um, it is our position, as well as the Japanese position, to put them on that path to graduation in, in, that, uh, in that document, in, in that lending program. Uh, if, uh, if, 
if it was up to me, China would have graduated already. Uh, and if it's up to me a little bit more, I would put them uh, on the they would be graduating at the end of this end of this five year document, which is supposed to take place starting in uh, 2021. So uh, thank you, Mr. Chung. Uh, just to uh, share with you my perspective on this, I've I've watched China do massive uh, investments at home in um, uh, metro systems, in freeways, on bullet trains. Uh, how many miles? I know you may not know the answer to this, but I, I, I'll pose it rhetorically in case, unless you want to jump in. But how many miles of bullet trains does the U.S. have, and how many miles does China have? I'll just pause for a second, in case you wanted to jump. Uh, yeah, sir, uh, you know I, I don't know the answer of uh, how many miles of uh, bullet train um, rail that uh, China has. Uh, I, I, I do believe I know what the answer is in the United States, um, and I, I could not agree with you more on these issues. And I think the priority is. For my office and the office that, and the elevation that I'm, I'm seeking, uh, is to get China to graduate so they no longer are borrowed. Yeah, the, yeah you as you probably uh, were. I mean, you said you knew the answer. I'm sure you were thinking zero in the United States. Yes. Uh, and um, I was on the very first uh, link from Beijing to Jianxin um, that was about I don't think it was 200 kilometers or 200 miles. So. Uh, and that was not that many years ago. It's after I came to the, the Senate. I think it was about 2013, about seven years ago. And China now has 16,000 miles of bullet trains. And just out of curiosity, as, as Chairman Young was, was um, interviewing you, I wanted to look up uh, the, uh, the high, highest tech magnetically levitated trains and I see a whole series of videos on YouTube about China having the fastest maglev train in, in the world. Uh, it bothers me subsidizing China, which is turning around and using its capital to do debt trap financing. And I think you used that word in your testimony, debt trap financing. It took me back to, uh, to college when I read a book uh, by Cheryl Payer called The Debt Trap. And um, at that time, it wasn't about China. It was about other international institutions that were lending to very poor countries. And then those countries elite were stashing their money uh, in Switzerland. And the whole country of very poor people was trapped trying to pay back that debt, which was a horrific situation. Uh, but now we have uh, China engaged in predatory actions of this nature. So I, if it's up to me, they'd be cut off yesterday. Uh, I don't think we should be part of financing uh, uh, China. I'm still waiting for a bridge over the Columbia River where we still have an ancient uh, bridge on wooden piers that, that uh, interrupts the main north-south corridor on I-5 between Oregon and Washington. And um, so you get my, my sense of uh, uh, concern uh, about this. I also wanted to turn to the issue of the China's abuse of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and basically a million people put into a high-tech slave camp with facial recognition, cell phone tracking, uh, concentrated 
uh, almost uh, slavery style work centers and how and just really feeling like the US has to take a major stand uh, about this, including blocking products being brought to the U United States uh, from this, this operation. And how can the, uh, the bank possibly play a role in highlighting and cutting off funding to anything involved or connected to that massive human rights abuse? Senator, thank you very much for that question. As I noted in my testimony, uh, I, along with uh, my colleagues and my partners on the board, we, we essentially killed two projects that were slated for uh, that province in China, Xinjiang. And, you know, we felt that, you know, the, the measures undertaken by the Chinese authorities in that did not warrant any type of funding ADB would provide and as you noted, it would be it would be U.S. tax dollars subsidizing uh, this province. And uh, Senator, I could not agree with you. We're not going to stand for this, and we will do everything in our power to make sure that one, China does not receive any any additional funding for that for this province. I've had assurances by uh, bank management, and you know we are extremely vigilant on this key issue. Uh, secondly, you know we we will. We are working on putting uh, China on this path to graduation, so they no longer are going to be borrowing from the Asian Development Bank also. Um, that is probably going to be my primary focus uh, in, in my current position and if, if I am confirmed for the uh, director position as well. You Thank have my solemn word on that. Thank you very much, Mr. Chung. I appreciate that. And and Mr. Mills, we have the opportunity to highlight this this issue at the United Nations. Your, your thoughts on that? I share my panelists' concern about what's happening in yours as well, Senator. Uh, this is an issue that the UN needs to address. The US government has, as you know, taken some action. We've taken visa restriction sanctions on PRC and local regional officials who we believe are responsible for the, the crimes you've outlined. Treasury has put, I believe, over 15 PRC entities on its list, restricted list. So we're taking some action. The UN needs to take action too. I know it's a, a strong concern of Ambassador Kraft and her team in New York, and I know they press to bring light to it through whatever mechanisms they can in the UN and to assemble a coalition of like-minded states to press China to take action and stop these crimes. Thank you, Ambassador Mills. I'd like to recognize Senator Cardin uh, from the great state of Maryland. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Chairman Young. And uh, let me first uh, thank all the witnesses uh, for not just being here today, but for your willingness to serve our country. Um, I was listening to the hearing a little bit earlier. I know you called on me out dual tasking with two committees that are meeting at the same time. So uh, I very much appreciated your response. Uh, uh, to Mrs. McGee, I, I did hear your response to Senator Merkley in regards to uh, the uh, issue of, uh, of what you're doing on trying to balance different priorities. This is a new division uh, within state. And I guess my concern is this. We are very much interested in making sure America plays a key role in humanitarian assistance locally. That's part of our DNA. 
we want to make sure we're aggressively engaged in helping people that desperately need help around the world. But we always do that within the parameters of our values and promoting human rights. So I just really want to get your view as to how do you balance a country that people desperately need human rights, desperately need humanitarian assistance, I should say, but have challenges as far as their governments, how they handle their human rights. How do you leverage America's participation on humanitarian aid to advance the core values of this country in respecting basic human rights? Thank you, Senator. Um, our American values, as you say, uh, are, are part of our DNA and underpin everything that we do. Uh, USAID um, uses a needs-based assessment uh, for uh, saving as many lives as possible uh, and targeting uh, those who are most vulnerable and in greatest need. Uh, and so uh, we approach uh, that need um, with um, as much um, again, targeted contextual uh, information and analysis as, as we can. Uh, we respect uh, the needs and rights of, of those that we are seeking to help. Uh, and that is the way in which we and our partners uh, conduct our, our operations. Uh, we work with as, as many um, partners and agencies as, as we can to deliver the best response, uh, and that is on a policy level, an operational level, uh, and on the ground executing uh, the programs. I would just make one additional observation. You're not doing the people any favors when we provide humanitarian aid it gets diverted to corrupt regimes and doesn't reach the individuals themselves, people themselves. So we, we have to have a pretty firm policy of why we're doing humanitarian aid to reach people and to advance U.S. values. So um, I, I'm going to expect that you'll keep our committee informed on how you're meeting the, that mission. I can tell you there is strong interest among all of our members to advance U.S. humanitarian assistance but also recognizing we don't want to fund corrupt regimes and see this money just diverted. Absolutely, Senator. I, I, I share that uh, concern wholeheartedly. Uh, USAID does use um, safeguards and, and provisions in, in concert with its partners, um, such as uh, geotagging photos, uh, uh, video distribution of aid, uh, and vetting of, uh, of uh, bad actors, um, uh, well, to prevent bad actors and, and diversion of aid and uh, egregious use. Uh, so that is absolutely a concern, uh, and I commit to you that that I will absolutely uh, ensure taxpayer dollars are used as intended. Mr. Dowd, if I could turn to you just for one moment. Um, the uh, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development has an explicit political mandate to support, support democracy. And yet, when we look at its history, it has supported a lot of countries that certainly are not democracies. So how do we promote the mission of the bank, how does U.S. leadership make it clear that we expect our participation to carry out the core mission, which is to promote democracy? Thank you, Senator. Yes, indeed. Uh, in the founding mandate of the EBRD, it explicitly says that uh, this is a democratically focused uh, bank and it advances democratic values. And perhaps that has been somewhat forgotten. I, I don't know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And of course, many of the countries with which 
uh, the EBRD does business uh, uh, are not uh, exactly uh, glowing examples of democratic progress. But I would hope that the bank will be a voice uh, for uh, democratic participation. Uh, and it's a long-term process. And I certainly, I can tell you this, uh, I will be a strong voice for democracy in all of the bank's dealings. And for those values that we as Americans hold, which are uh, free markets, uh, free elections, and democracy. I think it should be a part, and as I say, it's unique among uh, multilateral banks in that it explicitly calls for that. And uh, it's something I will be reminding people of frequently. Well, thank you for that answer. Uh, that's exactly what I wanted to hear, that you <laughs> well, that's... That, that's in the core mission of the document. And obviously, it has not been carried out with a lot of the different loans that have been given. So uh, I appreciate your commitment to remind your colleagues of the mission of, of the bank uh, as you go forward with uh, particular uh, projects. Uh, and to all of you, um, I asked all of our nominees on how are you going to advance American values? How are you going to advance basic human rights? How are you going to advance what makes America truly unique in world participation? Uh, so I will be following up with each of you to how you will use your position if confirmed uh, to advance our values uh, and how you can see uh, working with our committee and how we can work together uh, to accomplish that mission. Again, thank you all for your willingness to serve. Thank you, uh, Senator Cardin. Um, Ms. McGee, in 2018, USAID went, uh, underwent uh, some sort of fundamental uh, restructuring. The emphasis was on uh, increasing resiliency. One of the goals associated with uh, that resiliency initiative was to, uh, and this is a quote from USAID documents, elevate and integrate humanitarian and development assistance through the Office of the Associate Administrator for Relief, Resilience, and Response. So as the nominee to fill this position, how do you assess USAID's efforts to elevate and integrate humanitarian and development assistance? And, and what, if any, metrics uh, might be available to accurately make that assessment? Or it might be qualitative instead, which is fine. Uh, indeed, thank you, Senator. Um, that move uh, was um, was legally put into motion uh, just before uh, former Administrator Green departed USAID uh, earlier this year. He legally established the Office of the Administrator, uh, with the immediate change being the establishment of this Associate uh, Administrator position for um, Relief Response and Resilience, as you say, or we say more briefly, R3. Um, it is... Uh, <laughs> it is... Um, I think a reflection, uh, just as many organizations uh, contend with addressing the urgent uh, issues while attempting to to work towards uh, and to continue to work towards strategic objectives. Uh, and so uh, this position and the formation of the three bureaus uh, uh, that it would oversee are a reflection uh, of a cohesive and structural approach to do that. 
Um, particularly in this COVID environment, it has been said that if USAID had not um, designed this new structure, it would need to now. And so I think it was uh, it was great forethought uh, that that design uh, organizationally was made. Um, in the position, I would be providing strategic direction and priorities and advocacy, uh, as well as advice uh, for those for those um, bureaus, um, those being humanitarian assistance, conflict prevention and stabilization, and resilience and food security, um, and and uh, engaging uh, with the interagency uh, and externally with Congress, um, external stakeholders, private sector, um, host host nations, etc. Uh, and so. Um, that that is the the approach again to 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 address that continuum from immediate humanitarian assistance to to the long-term development uh, and so uh, part of my role will be uh, the real focus on integration will be um, ensuring that collaboration mechanisms are in place uh, accountability uh, to coordination across those across those functions uh, so that we are uh, sharing and updating information as we go uh, and so that we are maintaining uh, the focus and delivering on the uh, excellent results that have always been the case through humanitarian assistance uh, and also uh, that long-term development. Well, thank you. As, as, as you, you, you clearly have a uh, command of, of uh, where strategically things need to head. And uh, it seems uh, you, you have uh, more than a sense of what steps need to be taken. But if uh, we in Congress can assist in those efforts, uh, moving forward, if any additional authorities uh, might be needed, I look forward to working with you on, on that effort. Um, Mr. Manso. Thank you. OPCW uh, had, had, was uh, and has been actively involved in uh, Syria uh, in recent years as, as the Assad regime uh, has used chemical weapons against the people of Syria. Um, I know that OPCW uh, has made some valiant efforts to try and uh, hold uh, that regime to account, uh, but uh, he's uh, Assad has escaped justice, escaped accountability, and um, continues to um, continues to defy international norms and laws. What more? In your assessment, can OPCW do in Syria to, to draw attention to the atrocities perpetrated by uh, Assad against his people through the use of chemical weapons? Well, thank you, Senator, for that question and for touching on this very important issue. And what I would say is that uh, the Assad regime has escaped accountability thus far. But we are not finished with this issue, and this issue is not, the world is not finished with this issue. So I think there are a number of things that we can do and we are doing. And if confirmed, I would be um, very aggressive in pursuing these steps. So the first set of steps would be within the OPCW itself. Uh, they are going to conduct further investigations into other attacks to maintain a uh, a constant effort to develop the facts, present the facts to the international community, and have a political drumbeat of the need for accountability. There are then also technical steps we could take within the OPCW, such as uh, denying them the right to vote, denying them the right to speak, and other types of steps that we can do to indicate that they are in a pariah status and that they're out of compliance 
with their obligations in the Chemical Weapons Convention. There are steps we could take at the United Nations, including the uh, United Nations Security Council. And lastly, there are steps we could consider bilaterally. We already have taken some bilateral steps, including sanctions. So we are no, by no means at the end of this story, and it is very much the intention of the administration, and if confirmed, my, my intention to aggressively pursue these steps. That's incredibly encouraging. Thank you. Russia has, has had, they've met with some success, Mr. Manso, in uh, creating a false narrative about the use of chemical weapons in Syria. And um, as, as you contemplate stepping into this role with OPCW, what might that organization uh, do as it relates to their findings related to the chemical weapons use in, in Syria that hasn't already been done, if anything? Well, thank you for that question. It's indeed uh, uh, a very good observation. Uh, and I have, over my career, dealt with the Russians a great deal. Uh, and something that uh, you realize is they regard lying as a diplomatic tool. Uh, so therefore, the first thing to do is to make this clear that uh, they're not attached to the truth uh, as something that is important in diplomatic discourse, and they are perfectly willing to use untruths. And I must say that in uh, a number of their efforts, particularly trying to tarnish um, well-known NGOs or to tarnish the work of the investigative team that was put together by the OPCW, there are ample facts that we need to bring out in terms of public discourse that show that they are reflecting a position that is not true. But what I would say is this, this is the kind of issue that is not an event. You don't do it once and it's done. It's a process they will be tireless in promoting a false narrative. So we have to be tireless in uh, promoting the truth. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So the fact-finding missions, this gets a little more operational, that OPCW sends in to determine whether or not chemical weapons have been used. Uh, the composition of, of those missions, of those teams, has been criticized by the Russians, as I understand it, for not including Russians, right, on the teams. And is, is that a fair criticism? Um, and um, if so, why? If not, why not? Uh, I would say it's not a fair criticism. Uh, the OPCW has a commitment to what's called geographic diversity in their technical secretariat. So they do have a broad range of nations represented uh, in their technical secretariat and among their experts. These teams are multinational teams chosen largely on the basis of their expertise. And therefore the teams also represent a broad base of technical expertise and of nationalities. But no one country has the right to insist 
that their nationals be uh, uh, on the team. And I might add, it does not strike me as the best practice if you have a nation that is potentially involved in the, the incident as an enabler that their nationals be on the team. So I do not think the Russians uh, have a fair criticism here. I'm grateful uh, for that uh, closing with a, uh, a dose of common sense. So uh, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't want Russians on those teams. So I just, I, I thank each of you for your patriotism, for, um, for your desire to serve. Um, you're all very intelligent people with an incredible record of service and you have many professional options, but uh, you wanna serve your country during these challenging times. That says a lot about you, says a lot about your families. Uh, I'm so appreciative. Uh, for your time and your testimony here today. Um, I, I know Senator Merkley is, is as well. Uh, I believe we have votes going on, Senator Merkley. Uh, they have uh, been called. Uh, they, they will be called in about two minutes. So if there are additional questions from um, any of my colleagues, uh, they will submit those questions to you in writing. Uh, we hope you will uh, provide a fairly quick turnaround of responses uh, to those questions. And um, the record's going to remain open until the close of business on Friday uh, for that purpose. So thanks again to each of you. Uh, this hearing is now adjourned. Thank you all.